Okay, everyone, thank you for joining. Um, I was out of town, and I'm still out of town, and I was going to do the share last night, but uh, for whatever reason, didn't happen. So we're going to do it now in the morning. This is the Parsha of My Life class. Um, today, today is a good yomtiv. Today is a very special day. Today is Yotas Kislev. The day of the lights of Hasidus spring forth with all of their intensity. Just one second. So it's a powerful, powerful moment. L'chaim Lebrach, everyone. And um, today, this Yomtev, the Yomtev of Yutis Kislev, comes out Parshas Vayeshev. Um, and um, this year, it's Parshas Vayeshev. So we'll try to connect the idea of Parshas Vayeshev to Yutis Kislev. So Yutis Kislev is the the day in which the the um, permission was granted from above for the powerful illumination of Hasidus, in which we're always teaching over here at Mayan, to issue forth with all of its power and all of its light and all of its energy as a introduction to the days of when the world will be filled with godly knowledge, the time of Mashiach. As we know, that the importance of Hasidus, it serves two purposes. It's explained in many places. Number one is just to help us um, help us deal with the darkness of exile. In other words, in the time of the in the end days of exile, since things got so dark spiritually, also physically, there was a lot of hardships for the Jewish people in the last 200 years, including the Holocaust and so on and so forth. But particularly spiritually, there was an incredible darkness, which we even see that so many of our brethren have, you know, um, explored other paths in life other than uh, a life of observance because the concealments and the darknesses, spiritual darkness is very, very intense, very, very, very dark. So in order to be able to withstand um, and uh, hold on to, to, to being a Jew and to be connected to God, we needed an extra infusion. And that came through the teachings of Hasidus. So it helps us, um, navigate in, in a very, very dark and in a very, very, very difficult time. But that's one reason. Another reason, which is more applicable to us right now, since we're at literally at the threshold of the redemption, is that since the time of Mashiach is characterized as a time when the world is filled with divine knowledge, so as an introductory to that and as a beginning of that, already the onset of that light in, in order that Mashiach's world should not be disconnected from our world, but it should be one continuum, one that our world is rectified and enters into Mashiach. We already begin the experience of the Messianic age of Mashiach during the time of the exile. And a pivotal day of that is today, the 19th of Kislev, in which the great powerful lights of Hasidus flow without obstruction. And from year to year, they become more and more intense and more powerful. So today is just the greatest holiday. It's actually called Chaga Chagim, the holiday of holidays. You know, many Jewish people don't celebrate it just because it's 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 a recent holiday. It doesn't go back thousands of years. So not everybody has tuned in to this awesomeness of the day. But the truth is when Mashiach will come, we will see that this day is shining in a sense brighter than all the other holidays. It's a very, very an amazing day. Um, so I would like to connect the day to Mashiach because that's really where we're at and the parsha. So it will be a, a very um, simple class today. So I'm just going to tell you the stories. Um, the idea that you see from Yutas Kislev, we see that anything that has to do with messianic light comes is is um, can only 
come into the world with a lot of opposition. It faces the strongest opposition possible. Mashiach has to come in a very obscured and has to push its way through, has to fight every force that tries to stop it. So we see that in this week's Parsha, in which it says that God, in this week's Parsha, is creating, Hashem is creating the light of Mashiach. The Torah describes, really Parsha's Vayeshev is the beginning of the exile, because the Torah describes how the brothers, um, the Shvatim, the tribes, 12 sons of Yaakov, or the 11 sons of Yaakov, partook in one of the, what seems an incomprehensible sin, in which they took their very own flesh and blood, their brother, and they sold him into slavery. We know, as Rashi says, that it, they sold him from Amek Hebron, or Yosef left me Amek Hebron from the valley of Hebron. And Rashi asks the question, Hebron is not in a valley. Hebron is on in the hills. And Rashi explains that Amek comes from, means from a very deep place, from God's deep plan. Hashem had a deep plan that Avram Avinu that the Jewish God promised, told Avram that the Jewish people would be in a in a um, would be in, in a land that's not theirs, and that was the Egyptian exile for four hundred years. So, in order to facilitate that, to bring that about, and that was a, that was something that Hashem spoke to Avram, and Avram is buried in Hebron. So, in order to facilitate that um, promise or that prophecy that Hashem foretold to Avram Avinu, uh, there needed to be some kind of a scheme that would make it happen. So this is what brought about that the brothers should do something that really had no relationship to them. They were inc- they were not in a, they were not God forbid in a state that they could do something so horrific. But God was working through them, as Yosef later tells the brothers. I know this has nothing to do with you. This was Hashem was working through you. Hashem sent me over here. In any case, so in Parshas Vayeshev we really learn about the beginning of the exile. But the Medrash tells us something fascinating. Immediately after Yosef's sale in which Yehuda plays a major a major part, because he's the one who actually suggests that they should pull him out of the pit and they should sell him to Egypt. Uh, to Egypt, to sell him to the Yishmaelim, to the Arabs. Um, so he, he was the one who orchestrated the sale. And then he's the one who, it says that the brothers made a lottery, and in that lottery they chose, um, or they selected one of the brothers who's going to have the most... Um, um, heart-wrenching task of going to their father and telling their father that they found Yosef, um, his shirt being ripped uh, with the evidence that an animal had devoured him, a wild beast. And Yehuda was the one who was selected. So Yehuda was the one who went to meet um, Yaakov. So when, when Yehuda saw what happened to Yaakov, Yaakov was literally um, devastated beyond devastation. As we know that he was in a deep state of sadness, and maybe even in a state of depression, for 22 years. That's why it says the Shekhinah could not reside on him during that entire time. Because when Yosef wasn't there, he felt that his his family was ripped apart. And he knew that he was destined to build the Jewish people with 12 tribes, and he didn't have them. In addition to his simple love to Yosef, as Rashi says in the beginning of the parasha, that he, he loved Rachel, Rachel, his mother, and he was his child from Rachel, as opposed to most of the other children from the other mothers. Um, so he had a special, special love for him. But in addition to that, it, it meant that him as the destiny of the father of the Jewish people was incomplete. So Yaakov was beside himself. 
So after this happened, and the brothers realized what happened to Yaakov, and they blamed Yehuda part of it because they felt that Yehuda was was he. We know that Yehuda is a king. He was the king of the brothers, and later, you know, we see that the 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 the, the Davidic kingdom, as we're going to speak about, emanates and stems from the lineage of Yehuda. So Yehuda had that royalty within him, and as a leader, he he had the final say. And the brothers have said that if had you recommended that we just pull him out of the pit and use this as a warning that he shouldn't mess with us anymore and send him back to our father, then we would have listened to you. As you can see from here, again, when 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 people are doing something, generally we know when we do things that are wrong, when we sin, uh, we feel terrible afterwards. It's a momentary blindness. It's a momentary. I just saw this week from the holy Ishbitzer, from the great uh, saintly tzaddik, he brings um, an interesting idea that uh, he brings it from the Gemara. The Gemara says that when a person, I would have to look up the Gemara. I didn't look it up and I would be interested to look it up. The Gemara says that when a person is being tested with a sin, the person loses all, all at that moment, you lose sight of the awareness of the prohibition of the sin. In other words, you, you forget, you forget that it's prohibited, you know, test it. I mean, obviously it should be in your bones, in our bones, that what is against God's will is against God's will. But we kind of forget and we go into this blank. And obviously we have to deep dig very, very deep into our essence to be able to maintain our attachment to God when that blank happens. We also know that when people do things that are wrong, um, some, I mean, it's, it's a difficult subject, it's not for today. Um, the, 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 of course, they have to take responsibility for the actions that they've done. But on some, on some level, um, we are led into that place, whether for us simply it can be to be tested, but also later it brings us to a deeper connection to God when we do tshuva. So especially when it comes to the, the brothers, their sins was one that definitely was not their fault, even though they were punished. As we know, the 10 martyrs came as a punishment for, for the for the selling of Yosef, the ten great sides, Sadiqim, and says that the that the tribes were all reincarnated in these great saintly men, and they were tortured to death by the Romans. So this was a, a punishment and a rectification. But yet, on some way, as we mentioned earlier, it was all divine. And when things like that happen, you forget, you're completely lost. You don't even remember, you know, your entire, you know, whatever. That's why you see when Yehuda, that's what he explains to Ishbitzer. He says, when Yehuda gives a reason why we shouldn't say, he doesn't say, what do you mean? Because we're selling our brother. That's that's one of the prohibitions in the Torah, to kidnap someone and to sell him. It's, he doesn't say that. He says, what are we going to gain? So he's using a very rational, logical reason. Why is he using that? He says he's using that because he had nothing else to remember. He had nothing else to go on. He didn't remember the the, the, the divine commandment against it. All they were able to work with is he worked his way through logic to come up with an excuse why not to kill him. He said, what are we going to gain? What benefit are we going to have? Is our father going to love us more just because we're, we, we got rid of his, 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 his favorite son? That's what the Ishbitzer says. It was just a, 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 a temporary method. And he says that a person is allowed to do that. When you're in a state where God makes you forget the spiritual deeper reasons for not sinning, that you can grab onto any human reason, any logic to help you out, like we see from Yehuda. But back to what we were saying, um, when the brothers realized and they what happened, and again, they were they, this spell of confusion and darkness had evaporated, and they were back to their regular self, they blamed Yehuda for being part of it. And therefore, they demoted him. 
So the pasuk goes on to describe that Yehuda was kind of, you know, excommunicated, and he went off, and he uh, he, he decided, you know, kind of to, to do his own thing, and he gets married, and the Torah describes his marriage, and how he has two sons, and they both die because of their sins, and then um, his daughter-in-law, who, mar- who married the first son, and then uh, after the first son died, uh, she married the brother, because that's the mitzvah of Yibum, it's a certain mitzvah that we're supposed to marry a, 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 a couple who uh, whose who's husband, the man dies um, w- w- childless, the brother has a mitzvah to marry the, the widow, and this is what happened, Tamar got married, anyways, uh, in the end, um, Yehuda had a third son, also from his wife. His name was Sheila, but he was young, and she wanted to marry Sheila, but Yehuda said, no, go back home. In the end, she goes and tricks Yehuda. That's the famous story. She tricks Yehuda, and she pretends to be a prostitute. And again, we see God's working over here that Yehuda is seduced by her, and they, and they have relations, and from there, two children are born. And uh, here is the the fatherhead figure. Here is the the patriarch of the Davidic kingdom and of the of Mashiach in the world. So it's really, really astounding, which we're going to talk about in a, in a couple of moments. But the Midrash says something really fascinating. The Midrash says that from here we see that before the first oppressor was born, the Pharaoh who was going to oppress the Jewish people wasn't even born yet. Because even we learn later in the Torah that when Yosef went down to Egypt and he meets Pharaoh, this paro that he was dealing with, Joseph, was not the same paro who inflicted the Jewish people. The, the, the verse says explicitly, a new king arose that didn't know Yosef. It's an argument whether it's a new pharaoh or he pretended not to know, but we'll follow the opinion now that it was a new pharaoh, it was his, it was his son, it was his grandson, it was some somebody in the lineage, but it wasn't the same paro. So the paro, before the first inflictor, before the first impressor, before the first uh, um, 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 you know, uh, foreign exile, foreign power that was going to take a hold of the Jewish people, God is already created the, the final redeemer. That's how important the final redemption is, that even, you know, you have to make sure that you set the stage that you have the power of redemption, not even the redemption from Egypt, because that was going to come through Moshe. It has nothing to do with Yehuda. Moshe was a Levite. But because all the exiles are connected one to each other, and ultimately, um, the all the exiles are linked and and it's all about the final and complete redemption which we should be so excited about is we are meriting that this is happening in our days so um hashem already higdim lamak hashem already put the 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 healing before he created even the injury and the medrash says something really fascinating how you take a look at parshas vayeshev you see everybody is busy everybody's preoccupied yaakov is preoccupied he's so in what in his morning, he lost his son. He's, 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 he's no space in his being for anything else but the morning. The tribes were all busy doing their thing. They they had you know their issues to deal with after the sale of Yosef. They must have been looking at the mirror and been horrified about their own actions. Yehuda was be, and, and, and Ruvain particularly was busy doing tshuva for his sins, and Yosef was trying to like. Uh, make himself as 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 uh, survive. He was he was occupied with his survival going down to Egypt, and Yehuda was busy getting married, doing his thing, as the pasuk says, and God was also occupied in the midst of all this. Everybody's busy, and what is Hashem busy doing? Hashem is busy creating the light of Mashiach. What that shows us is that the most important thing in God's eyes 
is the Giyula, is the Mashiach. It's an interesting uh, passage. And that's an amazing thing. The, 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 the sages say, there's a Pasuk that says, Im Yismamea, it's a Pasuk in Chavakuk. If he delays, Chakeloi, wait for him. So the sages say in the Sechta Sanhedrin, Shema Toimar, will you say, Anu Machakim, we are waiting. Vuhu Hashem, Machakim, God is not waiting. Says if he's waiting, if he delays, if he if he's taking a long time, wait for him. Well, the, so the, the, the Gemara is saying, are we waiting? How about God? Is he waiting? So the, and the Gemara says, L'chen yachaka Hashem. It brings another verse. And this is a verse in Isaiah, in Yeshaya. It says, L'chen yachaka Hashem. That's why Hashem is waiting. L'chanenchem. To, uh, to grace you. L'chen yodum l'rachmechem. And he will rise to have compassion on you. So basically, the Gemara is saying God is also waiting. If so, Rashi translates, "Who What's God's taiva? What's God's desire? What is Hashem waiting for? God is waiting for Mashiach to come. So then the Gemara asks, if Hashem is waiting and we are waiting, if we're all waiting for the same thing, so why can't we just get it done? Who's holding it back? And the Medrash says, So the Gemara says that the attribute of judgment is holding holding back. What does that mean? Attribute of judgment? How can the attribute of judgment hold back? The way I understand it, it would mean the attribute of judgment means that, you know, the plan of Mashiach is that the world has to purify itself. It's the ultimate rectification of the entire world. And the question is, how much of that purification are we waiting for? How far does it have to go? And the attribute of judgment keeps on calling for even more rectification and more purification and more refinement. And that's what's taking, that's what's causing it to take so long. But what you see over here is that this is what's on Hashem's mind more than anything else. But when we take a look at the story of Yehuda and Tamar, and we spoke about this before, and all I would like to do today in, in today's class is just to show how the process of Mashiach is obscured in darkness with so many levels of darkness, and it goes through all of history. And this is very, very important, particularly this year, because primarily what we're going to talk about is how when Hashem was creating the light of Mashiach, the first light of Mashiach to really take hold in this world in a, in a Mashiach, to really kind of have a firm grasp already in this world, a firm standing in this world, it wasn't until a, few th- to, to a, a couple of hundred years later after these stories, these biblical stories, with the emergence or the or the ascendance of, of David Melech, King David to the throne, Rambam and Halacha, Rambam refers to King David as Mashiach Arisha, and he's the first Mashiach. Mashiach means the anointed one. The the final redeemer, the one that we're waiting for, Mashiach Tzadkenu, is called Mashiach Acharon, the final redeemer. And then there is Mashiach Arisha, and the first redeemer, and the first anointed one. To be the even though David the Melech wasn't the redeemer, he redeemed the Jewish people. He fought battles against the the Philistines, the Pelishtim, but not really considered a redeemer. Who took us out of exile? Yet he's called the first anointed one. So um, on this year is a special year because, as we mentioned, we know that this whole messianic process is really on the deepest level. It's the story of humanity. It's the it's the accomplishment of humanity. Mashiach is just the final product which we produce. The sum total work of all of humanity, all the goodness that we've done and all the holiness and all the battles that we fought 
and all the sacrifices and everything that we've ever done, all goodness culminates in a human being who's going to who's going to be the epic good person, and he's going to have the ability to bring out the goodness in eight billion people across the planet, and and all those that will be added on after Mashiach comes. It's going to be an incredible, incredible, the highest human being who will bring out the deepest good and reveal God in this world and every speck and corner of this world. But all this is the byproduct of all of our acts of goodness. And that's why the word Adam, which stands for Mashiach, is made up of an Aleph, a Dalet, and a Mem. So Adam, so it says in different various writings that Adam is, the Aleph stands for Adam, Adam, and the Dalet stands for David, and Mashiach is the, is the Mem. Adam, David, Mashiach. If that's the case, we spoke about this already earlier this year. If we take you all of time and we divide it into half, so let's do that. Now we're holding in the year 57. The Torah count this year is, hold on just one second. Um, I don't know why I lost my calculator on my phone. But okay, just give me one second. I'll find it over here. Decided to disappear. Hold it. Okay. Okay. Five, seven, eight, two divided by two. Yeah, 2,891. If you take all of history, when we smack and we divide it in two from the beginning of time from when Adam was created, from where the world was made until now, we have 2,800 and we have 5,782 then divided in half. It's 2,891. That's the year that King David was appointed king over all of Israel in Jerusalem. So the Davidic, the Davidic kingdom, the messianic kingdom was firmly established in this world during that time. And um, so since Adam, David Mashiach, we have a lot of hopes for this year. And may we merit that this year should be already the culmination and the revelation of Mashiach Tzedkenu fully for the entire world to see him. So therefore, we'd like to talk a little bit about how do we get to David and Melech? What's that story? And where do you see this whole pathway to King David, how obscured and how dark it is? So it says already in Svarim, in many books, but in a very interesting way, it's referred to in the book of Noem Alimelech from the holy saintly Rebbe Alimelech of Lezenz, who explains that, you know, that when the highest neshamas, the highest souls need to come into the world, it's really a concept already said in the Arizal, but the Noem Alimelech says it regarding to, to um, in the story of Yehuda and Tamar. It says there is an enormous, an enormous opposition because the Klippa knows, the unholy knows that, um, you know, uh, when these souls, these powerful souls come into the world, one soul, a little bit of light pushes away a whole lot of darkness. The klipa is just a bunch of lies. You shine a little candle of truth, the darkness evaporates. The greater the soul, the greater the truth, the greater the power over the darkness. Mashiach is the ultimate goodness, the ultimate light. So therefore, Mashiach encounters more opposition than anybody else. We see it already by Avram of and Avram Avinu had to be born in a very, very dark place. His father, Terach, was the lowest of the low in terms of the one who obscured God, the oneness of God. He's the one who brings monotheism, 
the belief in one God to the world. And his father is the one who is the promoter, the biggest promoter. His father ran the Amazon of idols. He had the biggest warehouse. If you have to order, you know, next day delivery or same day delivery, you know, Tarach had his idol, his, 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 um, his idol shop. So it was the total antithesis to the oneness of God. Um, and, these, and he was his father. And it even says, according to the Midrash, that um, Terach, um, uh, the, 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 when Avram was born, he was born when Terach had relations with his wife during her menstruation. So it's, in addition to that, it's a very impure, we know it's a forbidden relationship. It's not for, it wasn't never forbidden for non-Jews, but you just, it represents the epitome of impurity, the epitome of klipa. And yet from there comes Avram, the holiest soul, the greatest light to the world until Mashiach. Why? And the reason for that is because God has to slip the soul in kind of through the back door. It has to sneak its way in because or else the klipa would not agree or the attribute of judgment wouldn't agree, whichever, whichever way you're looking at it. And Hashem wants to work kind of within a system. Of course, he can do whatever he wants. Me, I'm a layman, who can tell him what to do. But God does want to work in a way that um, it, it, things are done in a fair manner. And therefore, being that there is so much opposition, there has to be some kind of a, <laughs> a trickery that takes place, a deception. So we see regarding Mashiach more than any, that's why it says there are three things that come um, suddenly, unexpected. The, the Gemara says three things that come un, unexpected. Metziah, a, a, a lost object when you find something. So that's the point. You, didn't, you don't plan. You don't sit down at the beginning of the day and plan on finding a $100 bill. It's like that's what it happens. You know? You're sitting at the park bench, and there it is on the bench in a way that there is no one around that you know that you have to give it back to. So it's God gave you a gift. You found it. So you didn't plan for it. It came suddenly, like, boom, there it is. Another one, this is a sad one, a scorpion. You know, no one sits and plans to be bitten by a scorpion. God forbid you stick your hand into the wrong place under something, and there the scorpion is, and and and, and the and you and you get the scorpion bite or the snake bite. So that's another thing that comes suddenly, unexpected. And the third one is Mashiach. Mashiach suddenly turns up in the most unexpected places. That's because because it has to like it has to like show up like bang. So we find that it's not just Mashiach himself, but the it's the it's the whole lineage to getting to Mashiach. So we begin with, we'll start with this week's parasha, even though we're going to back up a little bit soon and find this shrouded concealment, Mashiach's neshama coming to the world and a concealing. Now, for those of you who have heard this ideas from me discussed earlier, I do want to say that the latter part of the class is something that I've already once given, but it was on Shavuot. So it was a class that was not recorded. So the last part of the class is new stuff that I have not shared with you. Although some of the things I'm going to mention now, I did share already more than once on a class of the great um, um, darkness that hovers over the birth of Mashiach. So we go to this week's parsha. You know, time has come for Yaakov. For we, we have the Jewish people, we have the tribes, we have already the foundations, the pillars, the twelve stones of Israel, who are going to be the twelve pillar stones, the leaders of the tribes. And right away, immediately, we have to already establish. The, the, the final redeemer, the, the one who 
because the Jewish people have a mission. But within the mission, there is the mission in the mission. There is the inner nucleus of it all, and that's Mashiach. So therefore, immediately from the beginning, once we have the tribes, and Yosef was already dispatched out towards to lead the Jewish people into exile, right at that point, um, the Torah is now, uh, the God is now, you know, um, orchestrating the birth of Mashiach. And how does he do it in a way that was, we would think is so non-kosher? It is such a dark story. And here you have, again, this, this, this woman, her name is Tamar. She's, she's a very special lady. According to the sages, she's the daughter of Shame, Malkit Tzedek, the king of Jerusalem, the son of Noah. It's a great saintly man. It's, her, it's his daughter. And uh, she marries Yehuda's um, um, son. He dies. And then the second one, she marries the second one. He dies as well. Yehuda says, this, no, this woman, no good. She kills her husbands. Yehuda is, is, is afraid of her, sends her back to her home and says, wait till Shayla will grow up. But Yehuda, Rashi says, wasn't planning to uh, ever let her marry Shayla. But she, she had a, a, a divine inspiration. She had Ruach HaKodesh. That's what it is. There's nothing less. She would never have done this. She was a tzaddikist. She would never have done this, this seemingly act of, 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 the, the total opposite of modesty uh, to, to make, to, to pretend to be a prostitute and so on and so forth to set herself and to engage Yehuda and, and solicit this, this sinful act had she not been inspired by the one above. She received a divine prophecy that she was meant to be the mother of kings and that she has to have a child with Yehuda. She was told from above, it says, Baruch HaKodesh, a heavenly voice told her, your father-in-law is going up to Timna. Her father-in-law, Yehuda, is going up to Shear the wall. So she went out and she, re- and she removed her widow clothing, her widow clothing, and she dressed herself up to a certain degree in a, in, a, in a provocative manner to catch Yehuda's attention. Now this itself, Yehuda was not a person, Yehuda's, he would not be the father of the holiest kingdom and the holiest being in the world had he not been the righteous of the righteous he's not a guy who's hanging out in the in the uh saloon or he's hanging out in the uh, in the in the in the whatever that that's that's not in the tavern looking for girls that was not Yehuda. the fact that he, she caught his attention and the fact so the midrash tells us that the malach that god engaged angels and when god sends angels to to entice a person to get him turned on and to catch her and to, and that she caught his attention. It was, a, it was came from above. Now, again, the reason it had to happen this way is because if Yehuda would marry a holy Rebetzin, she was a holy Rebetzin, but if he would marry her in a traditional way and Yaakov would be at the wedding, officiating the wedding and all the Shvatim were all be dancing over there and everybody would be in the state of absolute holiness and Yaakov would say Hasidus, would reveal secrets of the Torah. And then Yehuda would go home at night with this holy woman and after all his deep, deep connections with, above, would have relations, marital relations with her. And with the deepest meditations, bring this holy soul that was later going to be the father of this holy dynasty into the world. Um, then it, the entire world of darkness would be up in arms. And who knows if they would be able to harm this whole dynasty. So God has to, as we mentioned earlier, sneak it through the back door. So therefore, he fit, figures he has a setting over here where he has Yehuda engage in prostitution. 
they go and they exchange. I'm not telling you the whole story. You can look it up in the Torah. Yehuda, she asks for payment, and Yehuda says, I, I don't have anything on me, but I will pay you. I'll send you sheep. I'll send you two young kid, kids, uh, kid goats or whatever. And she says, give me a, give me a, a, a um, security. Give me a deposit. Give me something I can hold on, collateral. Make sure you're paying. So he gives her. She asks, she asks what? For, for three very important items. These are all very deep secrets of what's involving over here. His staff, his tzitzis, his signature ring. I mean, these are all the elements of kingship she takes on him because that's what she really wants. They did what they did and she became pregnant. And then turns out that no one knows. She leaves and what happens? She's pregnant. Now, and she was considered to be a widower, a widow, which was not allowed to marry out yet because according to the laws of Yibam, which they were kind of abiding by, she's not free to go until she is, um, until she is, um, she has to marry into the family of Yehuda. She should have been waiting for the third son, Shelah. But she didn't. So turns out that she was condemned to be put to death because of her sinful act. She got so close to being killed with her baby. They already condemned her. They already condemned her to be burnt. And as they were taking her out, she at the last second, now you realize the forces of evil were already celebrating. They thought they've already got you. They've killed that soul. They've stopped it from entering into the world. And it's all going to be dependent on a person having the courage and Yehuda having the courage to being able to admit. And this is what happens. So she sends to Yehuda uh, right before they're ready to send her off to be killed, that to the one, she sends him the objects. And she says, to the one that, these, that this belongs to, to that one, I will, I am, I am, I am pregnant. And two amazing things happened over here. You see that where, where Mashiach comes into the world. Yes, it's shrouded in darkness, but at the same time, in the, in the midst of it, it's also the deepest sacrifice. It's the deepest holiness. Why? Number one, on her part, she, Tamar, first of all, the whole action was something that she, 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 she knew what might happen to her. And she, she acted with Messiris Nefesh to go about this and to make herself, uh, into, put herself into that position. To, um, to, to move to bring this holy child into the world. That's number one. The whole thing was completely imagine this big holy Rebbitson acting in such an, in such a, in such an unholy way. But this was all because she knew of the, the objective was in her mind. But more than that, now that she was going to be burnt together with her child, with her unborn baby, um, she was still not going to embarrass Yehuda. So she was not going to publicize it. She didn't say it in her own defense. She sent it quietly to Yehuda, a message, and Yehuda, it was up to Yehuda for Yehuda to admit because she was not going to embarrass him. So you see from here, this total sacrifice, she's willing to die. From here, the sages learn how a person should be willing to die and not to shame someone else publicly. So um, she, um, so you see the, the enormous selflessness of her. At the same time, Yehuda is also in that situation because Yehuda now has a ch chance. I mean, he's, he's, he's this great leader. Yehuda was a very, very prestigious person, like a very prestigious person amongst, you know, even though they demoted him, but he was still like a very known being, one of Yaakov's children. But in addition to that, you know, they still knew who he was, the leader of the tribes. And, 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 and here 
he would have to openly admit that he had relations with a prostitute. And that would be the biggest embarrassment for him. But this was a call of a moment. He has to save a life. Because again, if it was if it was really his daughter-in-law and before the giving of the Torah, that was one of the people who should marry her was the father-in-law. When Same idea that when a woman dies without a husband, she should marry into the family to establish a name for the for the, for the person who died. So it was really a mitzvah that Yehuda did, but it was a mitzvah being done in a manner where he, did, he wasn't aware of it. And here he had to admit to that big sin publicly. Imagine this would go out in all the tabloids. This would be everywhere. And yet Yehuda owned up publicly to that. He embarrassed himself. This was the moment where you, two people who completely transcended themselves, who melted into nothingness, that's the space to bring the divine into the world. That's where God comes into this world. And at that moment, Mashiach's neshama comes to both twins. She gave birth to twins. And the two twins are Zerach and Peretz. Peretz is called Peretz. Peretz comes from the word to blast open. The reason he was called that way was because when he came out, he came out like pushing out, like with a bang. Why? Because the other baby, the other fetus with him, Zerach had first sticked out its hand. And that's why they put a, a, a ribbon on his hand, that he was first. But then Peretz comes from behind and blasts and takes over. And therefore, we know that the, the, the character of his being as the father of Mashiach, the characteristics of him is that he breaks boundaries. He doesn't follow the, the norm because that's the whole idea. Godliness will explode across the entire world, will break all barriers of darkness, will break all barriers of finite finitude will reveal the infinite and the boundless in this world. And that's why from the very, very birth, it had to be an energy of blasting energy. And that's why we know that when we sing Friday night, when we sing about Mashiach coming, we call him Al-Yad Ish Ben Parsi, the son, the man, the son of the Poretz. There's a Pasuk also that says, Allah HaPoretz Lefneim, I think it's a Pasuk in Isaiah, that the Poretz is talking, referring to Mashiach, the one that will break all fences, the one that will break down all barriers, will go out, will, will rise, will, 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 will rise, or will go up in front of the Jewish people. Uparatsta. Hashem promised Yaakov Avinu. Uparatsta. So, Uparatsta. Yama v'keid matzafayna v'negba. You will explode. Judaism, holiness, godliness, monotheism. The, 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 the morality of Torah, God's morality and God's truth will break all barriers and will reach the four corners of the world everywhere. So Paratsta, which interesting in the Rebbe, from when the Rebbe became Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he becomes the, the known, uh, his, his first campaigns, when the Rebbe becomes Rebbe and sets Chabad as a world institution, as a powerful force in the world, what was the what was the drive? It was called Ufaratsta, Paratsta. And as the Rebbe himself tells us in the later Sikhas, the Rebbe gives us to understand, you have to understand the depth of it. The Rebbe says Paratsta is Gematria 770, which is the headquarters of the Rebbe, where the Rebbe is in New York. And the Rebbe says that's the headquarters from where all the world is illuminated with godly light, like we see today. Where is godliness coming? What we, we, in, how is Holiness and godliness reaching the four corners of the earth. There's a lot of holy institutions in the world, lots of them. 
established by great tzaddikim, saintly people, but there's effects, everybody knows this, is limited. It's limited in the fact that it is for their particular community in a certain place. Some have a couple of branches in a few places in the world, but they cover the entire globe and to be available for every Jew who wants to do a mitzvah, to be available for every Gentile who wants to know God, to have this incredible network of ufaratsta. And the Rebbe says ufaratsta, which is the whole power of Peretz, the power of Moshiach, Oroha Peretz, Peratzta 770, it is also Gematria base Moshiach. And that baby was born shrouded in darkness, shrouded in concealment, which by the way has to teach us as we're going to continue seeing throughout this entire uh, narrative, that if you see and you're wondering and you wonder about Moshiach in this world and you think that Mashiach has to be a person that is accepted by everybody and that everybody agrees and that everybody is celebrating and everybody from the beginning sees this amazing person and everybody co- collaborates behind him. Everybody joins forces. That is not true. Mashiach actually is a person who gets the biggest opposition, who's dismissed and dismissed and dismissed, yet it is so clear if you're just willing to look with open eyes, you can see clearly his light and his power that, in, that is influencing the entire world. And yet, you can still have mil- rabbis and great leaders who totally dismiss it and completely are not, are not, are not on, on, obviously, till a certain point. Once the revelation of Mashiach comes in full force, it's going to sweep up the entire world in an incredible way that there won't be able to be possibly one, one iota of opposition to him. But until that time, it's darkness like you saw in this story. Now let's rewind. We know that the first story, this is one of the channels. Avram Avinu is going to be the father of the Jewish people. He's also going to be the father of Mashiach. But Avram Avinu plants two seeds. One of his seeds is planted now through Yehuda. Now let's follow a little bit along. This Peretz, let's just give you the, the, um, the, the dynasty of Peretz. Um, So Peretz gives birth to Chetzron. Chetzron gives birth to Rum. Rum gives birth to Aminadav. Aminadav gives birth to Nachshon. This is the famous Nachshon who was there, who was the one who jumped into the sea and caused the, the sea to, to split. Again, you see the energy of Peretz. You see, when the Jews were standing at the sea, it says the sea wasn't splitting. And even when Moshe lifted his hand to split the sea, it uh, didn't split. It required one fanatic <laughs> who would just go into the water and he leaped into the water and he was named is Nachshon ben Aminada. And he split the sea, which by the way teaches us an amazing thing. Moshe was in that time the Mashiach. And even though he's given the divine, the divine power to split the sea, yet God wants our participation. God wants us, our amuna, our faith. So until Nachshon doesn't do it, it doesn't happen. And who is Nachshon? He's Ben Parzi. He's a son of Aminada, but he comes from parents. He has the ability... And again, it's, it's, it's a certain psyche. It's a certain ability to like dismiss the, the naysayers. It's a certain ability to, to, to not be discouraged by everybody saying it's impossible. It's that notion that you can accomplish the impossible. That's the partsy. You can do what's, you can do anything. It's God's will, anything can happen. And and your willingness to, to, to give it all you've got, even full, full, full sacrifice. And Nachshon went for it, okay? So you got Nachshon. Then you have 
Shalmain, then you have Boaz, as we're going to see, it's going to come into the story soon. Then we have Oyved, and then we have Yishai, and then we have David. Okay? So this is the lineage. The lineage is stated explicitly in the end of the book of Ruth, of Rus. Over there it says all the family. Now let's back up a little bit. This is one of the lines of David. The second line of, 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 the, of kingship on the female side was going to come through, obviously, Rus. And Rus is a Moabite woman. And she's the mother of Mashiach. And the, it couldn't come from anybody else. She had the spark in her. And she's just this incredible woman. And we're soon going to see that she has the same darkness like her grandmother, like her grandmother, um, 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 like the, the, uh, like the mother of, of, of the other kingdom, the other lineage. Okay, Ruth is going to be serve as the mom, the, the, the maternal uh, lineage for King for David the Melech. And um, Peretz is the is the paternal father of Mashiach through the through the fa- son through the through the uh, direct to the boys. So how did Rus come about? So Avram Avinu is going to father two families. The the family of of it's actually not from Avram himself, but it's from Avram's nephew, which is Lot, as we know the story. So we all heard the story. It was a few weeks ago. We read it in the Torah about after Sodom and Amorah um, were, 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 were destroyed because of their extreme jealousy, extreme, the extreme opposite of godliness. That's very interesting if you think about the story. Avram Avinu is the epitome of kindness, the epitome of goodness and kindness. He does goodness to everybody, not expecting anything in return. What is the extreme opposite of of kindness is cruelty. And, and, and the, the, the ultimate is when someone acted in a kind way to you and you did, and one, one is lacking in gratitude. It's the opposite. To, be, to, to not being grateful is the opposite of kindness. Kindness is giving even to those who don't deserve, even those. And, and the opposite of kindness is when someone is deserves and not just deserves but they saved you and they gave you so much goodness and so much and yet you're you're a person not recognizing and not having the gratitude total antithesis to the kindness so here you have avram's nephew lot who grew up in avram's world of in a world filled with this incredible godly kindness he has some of that kindness a little bit in him but then he goes to live amongst the sodom amongst very selfish people and he loses a lot of it. It's hardly anything left. And then finally, but he's still kind to the angels. He lets them into his house. So there's still a little bit of that Avram kindness and, and, and flowing through his veins, flowing through his blood. What happens to Lot? Because of Avram's merit, only because of Avram's merit, and because spark of Mashiach that is in Lot, Lot is saved. Him, his wife, and his two daughters. But his wife due to an extreme selfishness. She didn't even want to give salt, as the, Medrash tell, as the Pasuk tells us. Turns around when she sees, when she hears the thunder and the noises coming from Sodom and Amor, and she turns into a pillar of salt. Lot escapes with his two daughters. They end up in a cave. They thought the whole world was destroyed, and they decide that they have to repopulate the world. They give their father to drink. They get him intoxicated, and they have relations with their father. 
Again, one of the most ugliest stories possible. It's an incestuous relationship. And what happens? But since their intentions were good, again, even in this case, the two daughters of Lot are intending to build the world. What is Mashiach? Mashiach is the ultimate construction of this world, making a home for God in this world in which we need people. And they, in a sense, probably knew that they would not go down in history as as um, in in a in a in a in a in a in a in a, in a complementary way. They're going to be shamed as 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 girls who had relations with their father and seduced their father. Yet, um, yet their intentions were pure and holy, and God sees the intentions. And from them are born the two nations, Ammon and Moab. And both these nations, Ammon and Moab, both of them are going to be the, the, the lineage to Mashiach. Because Ruth, who is a granddaughter of Moab, see this Moab fellow? His name is Moab. Later there's a king. His name is Balak. Balak was so... Rep- is this the total antithesis to Abraham, to Avram Avinu, in which the Torah tells us that the family of the Moabites are not allowed to marry into the Jewish people. Why? Because they're the opposite of what a Jew is. A Jew is kind. And they're so, they're the, as mentioned earlier, they represent the opposite of kindness and that they have total antithesis, no gratitude at all. Because when the Jewish people the whole family, Moab was only saved. Their whole germinating in this world came about on the merit of Avram, father of the Jewish people. When the Jewish people were coming out of Egypt, the Torah says they should have come out to greet you with bread and water. That's what they should have shown, their gratitude, that they're alive because of you. Instead of that, Balak, the king of Moab, goes to curse the Jewish people, hires Bilam to curse the Jewish people with the, with the intention of annihilating them completely. Total opposite of kindness. Yet, in that, remember we're saying the whole time, the diamond in the rough, in Moab is flowing, and in Bullock is flowing the flow of Mashiach. In, because there is, again, in the garbage, in the sewer, it's almost like Mashiach's light is literally going through the sewer of, 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 of the world. And that's where God is hiding it. Because Bullock has a son, and his name is Eglon. And Eglon He's the next king of Moab. And Eglon is the father of Ruth. Now, Ruth, in the end, as we're going to see, joins the Jewish people. And she becomes the great-grandmother of, of David Amelach. And then there is from Ammon, which is the second son born that night, or this, from, um, from Lot, the, the second neck night, I mean, the, the, the second daughter, um, she gives a, a, a woman by the name of Na, Nama who marries, um, who becomes one of Shlomo Amalek's wives, King Solomon's wife, and becomes the mother of Rechavam, who is the next king. Now, Mashiach is a grandson, both of King David and of, of Shlomo through this mother. So here you see again that the pathway to Mashiach has to come through this powerful, this, this, this extreme dark lineage, which begins from an accessious relationship. Again, all to keep the eyes of the Klippa off this family, to allow this energy to come into this world unnoticed.
Well, let's take a look at that amazing story. So as I mentioned earlier, God forbids the Jewish people from um, allowing any, any Moabites to marry. That means if, if a Moabite, if anybody from the Moavi family wants to convert, they may not, even they can convert, but they can't marry a Jewish woman. They can only marry another convert, but they can't marry a, pro, a, a Jewish girl born in a Jewish family. So here you have the story that Rus, and again, it's following, you see how it's all following along this amazing lineage. One of the sons of Nachshon, we said earlier his son was Shalmon. Well, Shalmon had a brother, and his name was Elimelech. Now, everybody knew that this is the royal family. That was known. That this, this is the lineage. It's parrots. It was known to the Jewish people that this is the great family. People were having great expectations of Elimelech. He has, even has the words Melech in his name. But Elimelech decided to abandon his people. And where did he go? Leaves Israel. It was a time of famine. And where does he go out of all places? To Moab. Which, as we said earlier, represents the antithesis to what Judaism is. Antithesis of its total ingratitude. And so on. So it's the only nation that we're told and never allowed to marry into the Jewish people. Amen and Moab. And Elimelech goes, joins with him. But right over there is where he picks up the spark. He goes with his two sons. And his sons marry two over there. They've met two two noble women, two princesses, and they marry Orpa and Rus. And the Torah tells us the story how Rus is where this suddenly the spark of Abraham is reignited in, in this woman. She's containing that awesome goodness, that infinite goodness in her heart. And what does she do? The ultimate kindness. What's the what's the what's the real kindness? The real kindness is selflessness. She's utterly selfless. She tells her mother-in-law, I'm returning with you. Naomi, she's going with her. She doesn't care about any of her personal benefit. She's going to be a maidservant. Here she's a princess. She's destined to marry princess, to live a lavish life. She's going to live like a pauper. She follows Naomi back to the land. and She holds on to her when her sister-in-law left. But she comes along. She pet, and she attaches herself to Rus. Comes, I'm sorry, Rus attaches herself to Naomi. She comes back. She could have been at, okay, she needs to get married. She could have married who? She should have married. She's a, 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 a kind of a, a convert, this kind of peasant girl now, and this, even though she's a princess, but here she is poor without anything. She would have married at least a young, you know, fellow who would marry her. No, her mother-in-law tells her, again, this is all by divine inspiration. Go out into the field and go meet Boaz. Who is Boaz? Boaz is the son of Salmon, as we said earlier. He's the nephew of Elimelech. And uh, he was a very old man by that time. And, and Ruth was told to go, go dress yourself up and go out to the field and be with Boaz. Anyways, a whole long story, as the Torah tells us. Boaz didn't touch her that night, but he requested to marry her because it was a mitzvah, whatever, to, to redeem. It has to do with the redeeming of the fields and so on and so forth of people who died again without children. So Boaz had the mitzvah to, to redeem her, but there was a closer relative. And here is where this question comes up for the first time in the history of, this, of, the, of, the, of, of, of the Jewish people. A question arises in front of the Jewish court. And that is Boaz is a kosher Jew. How can he marry a Moabite girl? You cannot allow to marry 
The, Mo, the Moavim are not allowed to enter into the Jewish people. How are you allowed to marry a Moabite girl? So the Sanhedrin had to sit down and, 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 and ask this question and debate it. And this was a, a suddenly a moment, and this is a very important, crucial, pivotal point in this whole class. It was a moment of clarity in which God illuminated the minds of our sages. This question didn't come up for a few hundred years. And now it's suddenly like 400 years or 300 years. Suddenly the, 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 the question suddenly came up and there was an, an illumination. The sages were able to see clearly that the prohibition, and they derived it from the various different ideas, that the prohibition against a Moabite marrying into the Jewish people is only to the male Moabites, not the females. Females are allowed to because they, they learned that Moavi, the low Moavit, only a man and not a woman. That means a girl who converts could marry a Jewish man. And they also derived it from something else that it says because they, they didn't come out to greet you with milk, with uh, bread and water. That's why God is angry at Moab. But the, the, that, that's something that men would do. Women would, would remain modest. Don't go out to greet, to, greet, uh, to greet people. They would remain in their homes. Therefore, they're not held at, at fault at that. That's why the girls are not condemned to this fate that if they convert, they can't marry a Jewish. So that day, the Sanhedrin delivered this psaq. This is God's halacha, which Hashem prepared to be this way to allow for Mashiach's entry into the world. They had an illumination. And, but, 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 you know, but it was still so unclear that the other relative, who was the closer relative, declined. He didn't want to marry her because he felt that uh, he wasn't sure about it. But Boaz had the conviction that this was the right thing to do. He married her. They had... They had they, they were together. She became pregnant with the, the future of Mashiach's soul. Mashiach is now impregnated in Ruth's. But you know what happened? An amazing thing happened. That night, Boaz died, or towards the morning. The next day, there was a massive funeral. Everybody was the funeral at the funeral. Now, what do you think happened at that time when everybody now is taking Boaz. Who's Boaz? Boaz is the member of the royal family. He's this big tzaddik. He's this holy man. He's the one who's carrying the seed of the future empire of the Jewish people. And here you have a Moabite girl just coming out of, you know, she, who is she even? A maidservant. She arrives over here. She's from, from the fields of Moab, a poor girl. What is she marrying into the royal family, into the highest, into the greatest of the great? How do you bring something that's so impure, so to speak, in their minds now, the Sanhedrin said it's good. So there were the, the, the Jewish camp, there were various different attitudes. Some people believed and um, were certain that this was not a correct psak din. This was a mistake. Now, really, the Moabite girls are also prohibited. They were, they, from the very fact, and, they, and, the, and, and, and the fact that what happened was when they saw Boaz die the next day, what did they say? They said this was punishment. He was not allowed to marry her. And because he's such a tzaddik, God punished him right away. He died. And even those who didn't say that the, that, the, that, the, that the verdict, the legal verdict handed down by the high court that he's allowed to is wrong. It might be correct, but it still was not right for someone of his stature to marry a girl like this. So they dismissed her. 
But meanwhile, Boaz was supposed to die a long time before that. God kept Boaz alive. He was like a few hundred years old, it says. God kept him alive just for this moment in order for him to father this child. And that's why he died the next day, because he completed his... See how God's thinking and humans' thinking is completely off? We're looking at it as punishment to him. Here's the opposite. He should have died a long time ago. His life was extended to live until this night. But once the night was over and his seed was delivered, this Mashiach seed was delivered into Rus, who she's the other half of the Mashiach Neshama on the mother's side, and the two souls connect together to create eventually the Neshama of David the Melech and Mashiach Tzidkenu, now Boyaz can die. But not so in the eyes of the masses. And there was a dark cloud that now descended on the entire family. So much so that when Rus gives a birth to her baby, no one was there to even care. No one cared about this child. No one discussed it. The Pusik says her neighbors, her neighbors said a child was born to Naomi. They didn't even want to say it to Rus because Rus was such a such a clouded figure that she's, you know, she's kosher, she's not kosher, she was like semi. They said, a child was born to Naomi, they said. Her neighbors gave her the name. And they called her Boya's son. They called him uh, Oyved. That was the name they gave him. Where were all the sages? Where were all those, all those who celebrated the marriage at that moment? You know, they came to the Sanhedrin and people would say, at that moment when they did get married, it was okay. It was only the next day that the question started, right? Because of the funeral. Where were they all now when the baby was born? You would think this is, the, this is like the crown prince who's, who's like the continuation of the kingdom. No, no, no. Everybody, this, 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 this baby was like kind of uh, shrouded in, 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 in uh, what we call it, uh, in suspicion. No one wanted to really have anything to do with him. But then things cleared up. Things got kind of better. Why? Because this Oved ended up being a huge tzaddik, a very big tzaddik. And when people saw him turn out to be such a holy Jew, they respected him again. And the question regarding his legitimacy evaporated. And then he gave birth to another person called Yishai. Now, Yishai is known as one of the greatest tzaddikim that ever lived, the father of King David. So much so that when it says that Yishai is one of the four people who had no sin at all in his record, he only died because of the sin of the snake. Because of the blemish of, this, of Adam, not the sin of the snake. Adam got got impurified with the impure, as the sages say, the impurity of the snake by the sin of the Eitzah. So it created a certain stain on all of humanity until Mashiach. So even if someone doesn't have personal sin in order to rectify for to, in, in, their, in their death, Yishai had to die just because it had nothing. He was impeccable. So when people see such great tzaddikim coming from the family, it kind of, kind of washed away all doubt and the grandmother Rus was kosher again. Boaz was kosher again. And again, it was fine. The Jewish people had no questions on it. Everything was good. 
The reason is because there's no need now. Right at this moment, there's no need. There should be questions. God doesn't have to hide it. What I'm saying over here in this class is one idea. That when it comes to Mashiach, God creates this blurriness. He creates this fog by divine decree. And whenever it's necessary, that that confusion and that fog and that darkness comes down. And when it's not necessary, it goes away. And you wonder for like a long time, no questions, everybody's good. Yishai has six children. All of them are tzaddikim. All of them are righteous. All of them are all of them are royal for king, are, are are worthy for being kings. They're full of charisma. They're 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 living in Bethlehem and Beis Lechem. They're the pride of the Jewish people of the family of Yehuda. Until the next event happens, Yishai gets has married, as we said, has four six sons and two girls, eight children. And in his elderly years, he begins to self-doubt himself. He he begins to have questions. Suddenly, in order to create the next phase, which is the most important stage, what do we have? That Tzaddik Yishai, who didn't sin all his life, begins to have doubts if he's a kosher Jew. Because he's beginning to, you know, he was thinking about it a long time. Did his grandmother, Ruth, was she allowed to marry um, 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 Boaz or not. Maybe it wasn't kosher. Maybe this that the sages then permitted, maybe they didn't, maybe it wasn't the right, a correct thing. And as a result of that, he started feeling guilty and he started thinking maybe he's not allowed to, that he's living in sin because his wife is a kosher Jewish woman. She's not going to marry a person who, who's from Moab. Now again, he's no, in truth, he's not a problem because his the way his family from the Moab side entered into the stream of, of the Jewish people was through the female. And females are, if they convert, are allowed in. So even though he's male, but he's male, his Moabi genes are coming from a female, which the female was allowed to enter. So there was no problem in it. But he is now questioning, maybe he's not allowed to. So he decided because he was plagued with, with guilt and not being able to live with himself, that maybe he's causing his wife to live in sin, he decided to separate from his wife. For a few years, he was separated from her. He did not have relations with her. He was separated with her. She was pained very much by it, but, you know. And it became known to his sons as well, that their father separated from their mother. But after a while, he began to think, you know, we know, especially, obviously, the lineage of King David definitely has, I'm thinking the psychology, what's causing this? And then the lineage, since King David's, David HaMelech, since the Mashiach's, Mashiach's energy is to establish in the physical material world God's empire, to make the physical world holy and godly, the idea of populating the world and being living in the world and not being removed from the world is a very deep conviction in anybody that's part of this family. Mashiach is not someone who hides in a cave and, and, and draws people out of the world. Mashiach is all about bringing holiness and goodness to the planet in a settled way. So Yishai starts thinking, it's not good that I'm not married. I'm not living in the world. You're not married. You're removed from the world. I'm not attaching to this world. I got to get married again. Torah says, God did not create the world for To. To means... Chaos, to be settled, to be married. But he has a problem. 
Who is he going to marry? So he decided that he can't marry because if he's a Moabite, then he's not going to marry a Jewish girl. But if he's not, you see, if he's not, then he's a kosher Jew. He can't marry a non-Jew. So he, here's his problem. So what does he do? He takes his maidservant and he frees her on the condition. Here's an amazing story. He frees his maidservant on the condition as follows. He liberates her. Now, once she's liberated, she's freed now. She becomes a, Jew, a regular Jewish girl. So he said like this, if I'm really kosher, then you're going to be liberated. And then you're a convert. You're, you're a free, you're allowed to marry me. And we're allowed, to, we're allowed to be married because you're a kosher Jewish girl and I'm a kosher Jew. If, however, I'm really a Moabite, not kosher to enter into the Jewish people, I'm an illegitimate Jew, kind of, then, I'm, then you're going to remain a maidservant. And then when we're going to be married together, I'm allowed to because a, 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 a non, an illegitimate Jewish person is allowed to be married to a shifcha, to a maid. So this was his calculation. She was preparing now for her wedding with, with, with Yishai. She saw, however, that her mistress, which is the, the real wife of Yishai, was very pained by this, extremely pained by this. And she decided, again, selflessness, to do the same thing like Rachel did with, with Leah, to exchange. And instead of her going into the bridal chamber... She sent her, her mistress, who was the real wife of Yishai, in. Yishai had no idea who it was. So in his relation, and again, to create David HaMelech's Neshama, it had to be that he doesn't even know who he's with, which is not a kosher type of an intimacy, because you're supposed to know. The Gemara says that a person has to now to think of another woman when he's being intimate. In this case, the world, just like we find all these obscure darknesses, there's another darkness over him. He thinks it's her, but it's really his wife. <laughs> it's his wife, that he, it's his Rebetzin that he's been married to for all this time and had his, all the other children, but he has no idea. And he's such a tzaddik, so he obviously he's not conscious of the fact that this is his wife, you know, because he's not really tuned into that. He's in a holier state. And that's it. She leaves and pretends nothing happened, and, but he has no idea who she is, and she's pregnant. And finally, the ultimate seed has been delivered for the for the for Mashiach, the one who's called the first Mashiach for King David to be born. King David's mother, this holy tzaddikus, is now pregnant. I think for the ninth time, she had six boys, two girls, and now for the ninth time, she's pregnant. The family finds out she's pregnant, and everybody knows that she was never divorced. And she's not been with her father, with Yishai. So she must have been in an extramarital relationship, which means that her baby, first of all, she should be killed. She's warrants the death penalty for that, a married woman. Plus her baby is a mamza, is a real illegitimate child. That is a serious situation. The boys came to their father and said, we got to kill mom. That's how serious it was. Yishai said, well, didn't want to do this because he felt it would create a bad, he was hoping that from his sons would come the lineage, the kingdom. If they kill the mother, the people will start questioning the, the validity of any all the other sons. So he said, let's, shh, 
let's hush the whole thing. Let's just be quiet. What we will do is let her give birth in secret and we'll kind of send this boy off and no one will have anything to do with him. We'll be excommunicated from the family. Lo and behold, the baby was born. And that is this little child who they named David. And he was the ugly duckling of the family, even though he was beautiful. He had magnificent, he had beautiful eyes. He was a beautiful child. But yet he was the one who was the black sheep of the family. He was the ugly duckling. He was the one that no one wanted anything to do with. His mother, when he was a little boy, kept on telling him, I and God know the truth. And I'm telling you the truth. You are a holy child. You're not, God forbid. You're not in any way um, a illegitimate child. You're a holy child. You're okay. You're 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 a special. You're you're. There's nothing wrong with you, but yet the family thought he was a mamzer. Embar- the embarrassment to the family. So King David in Tehillim says. They speak about me. These are his words. This is his words. Tavad HaMelech says. Yosichu bi, they speak about me. Yoshve Shar, the people sitting in the in the Shar, the people sitting in the um, at the gates, referring to the Sanhedrin. They're, they are questioning the Sanhedrin is the, the great courts that's questioning my legitimacy. Remember, we said earlier, no one, till this point, no one even questioned whether Rus was kosher. The whole thing came about because Boaz starts rethinking maybe he's not kosher. And Venachri, um, and he says, Muzara Echa. Hear these words. He says, I was a stranger to my brothers. Venachri Lebnei I was a foreigner to the sons of my mother. And he mentions his mom. Because just like they rejected him, they rejected his mother as well. They searched, they thought the worst things on her. Literally the same story like Tamar. He was a total outcast. For 29 years, King David was laughed upon, scorned upon. Because as he was getting a little older, people knew that Yishai has another son. And there were rumors going around. And no one refuted the rumors because they, they saw that he's not part of the rest of the clan. When Yishai comes with all of his sons, all princes, they're all honored wherever they're going. There's like this the royal family. And here's this like hushed child. So people started saying all kinds of rumors, but no one rejected those rumors. So then it started becoming the, the normal. And everybody was saying that he's a non-kosher child. It was terrible. David suffered so much. It says that God puts King David in the midst of history, like we spoke about it that in his suffering that he suffered, he should take upon himself atonement atonement for all of, all of time, half the time before him and half the time a- after him. But the Pasuk describes him as having very good eyes. That means he only looked and saw the good in people. He didn't see any bad in his very brothers who tormented him, in the whole family that rejected him. One of the reasons they sent him out to be a shepherd was they were hoping he would die. They were hoping out, out in the fields he would be killed by a wild beast. Like it actually says, he was the lion and the, and the bear came at him and he killed them. And that was what he gave him the courage to go fight 
Goliath, uh, Goliath, the, the, the Philistine. But that was the reason why he looked at them because he realized they don't hate me. They, they make mistaking. They, he, he believed his mother. He knew the truth. But he knew that they're mistaking and they hate sin and they hating him because they think he is sin. He is a product of sin, but he is not sin. That's the way it always works. The holiest of the holiest are, are, are accused to be the darkest of the darkest. And this was the story of David Amelech's life, 29 years. And he was considered such an outcast that even the prophet couldn't see it. After 29 years, Hashem sends Shmuel Anavi, Samuel the prophet, to go to the family, to go to Bethlehem, to Bethlehem, and to go seek out the family of Yishai. And to um, appoint from that family, Li Melech, to me a king. As the Medrash says, as Mepharshim say, Li, the Malbim says, Li, to me, only I see this king. You won't see him. No one can recognize him. He's so concealed in darkness that no one recognizes him, only me. So Shmuel and Navi comes to, this is described all in, in Sefer Shmuel. Shmuel comes to the family of Yishai. The elders all come out to greet him. They, Shmuel, the great prophet, the seer comes, comes to town and he's coming to the family and they realize something great is going to happen. And he reveals to Yishai why he came for. And Yishai brings his son, his oldest son, Eliav. And when Shmuel looks at this Eliav, he is so royal. He has all the characteristics of kingship. He was such a, Shmuel is not just looking physically, he's looking into his soul. He sees all the spiritual lights that this person has. He is part of that family, but he's not the one. And Shmuel looked at him and said, felt the, the verse says specifically he said oh, oh, in his heart he said oh, he's the guy he's it it's, this is really it this is because Shmuel was the one who anointed um, Saul Sholamelech he knew you know, and, he, and, he, and it says Shaul was taller than everyone else spiritually and so he can tell a king he was so excited and God says he's not the one and then he presents his second son and the third son and the fourth son fifth son till he goes through all six boys and the Pasuk, it says seven boys. The Mepharshim asked, what's with it? Where's there were seventh? All of them passed. And each one, God said, is not the one. And now Shmuel turns around and asks David, asks Yishai the big question, is there anyone else? And he says, yeah, there's one youngster. He says, bring him fast because I'm not leaving. We're not going to go eat. They prepared a, prepare a big feast. We're not going to sit down to feast until I see him. So the last thing on anybody's mind, that this illegitimate child that they kicked out, this ugly duckling, he's the one. And they brought David and Melech, like, without a choice. They brought him to Shmuel, and Shmuel took one look. And, and, and then the prophecy comes to him, and he says, he's the one. And David and Melech is then anointed. And you would think the moment he was anointed, it was like, wow, finally, all doubt is cast away. Everything is good. Yishai, in his mind, now realized that he made a mistake all his life. Yishai's own father, the great Sadiq, realized he made a mistake all his life, but not the brothers. Elihav, the oldest of the brothers, even after the prophet anointed him, remained um, in doubt, wasn't, wasn't satisfied. Later, you see, he chastises him. He yells him when David was, was offering to go fight uh, the, the giant. Elihav dismisses him and says, who are you? You're a sinner. Get out of here. Only later, after he beat the Philistine, that uh, that Elia finally accepted him. His own family. 
can't see, the one that God anointed, David remains a shepherd. And then King Saul appoints him to be a musician, to play a, a harp in front of him. This great soul, the light upon of all the worlds, the ultimate light, is chased and chased, and then his father-in-law wants to kill him. And finally, when it even when Saul, King Saul, Shalom Melech dies, and you would think by now everybody knew that he was the anointed one. They still, they still were uncomfortable with him. They were uncomfortable with him. And Avner Bener, who is the who is the general of Saul, decides to appoint Ishbosheth, who is the son of Saul. He decides to appoint him to be the next king. Why? Because he was such a great scholar. He derived it from a verse. In the Pasuk it says that Hashem says to Yaakov, last week after Yosef, when, after Yaakov returned to uh, the land of Israel, Hashem says to him, and kings will go out of your loins. So which kings? The only one that was still going to be born then was Binyamin. So Shaul was one king. So that says kings. So he figured it has to be two generations. But hold it. The Navi, Shmuel and Navi, had already appointed the next king. What are you making Taurus? What are you making Shetlach? That's the way it is. Even the Torah, even the great sages can make mistakes. Avner went and he appointed Ishbosheth. And it says Avner later was killed. Yoav, the other general of David, killed Avner. We'll see. But the, the Medrash says, why was Avner killed, the general? Because he delayed the kingdom of David by two and a half years. Because he had established the next king. It should have been King David, but he established another king. And that's why Avner, who was an enormous great man, was killed, was punished because of that. In the end, this very same Avner had a change of heart, also came about through a strange story. Ishbosheth accused Avner of being, of being, um, having relations with his father, the king, the old king, Shoals concubine and that was and Avner got very upset of that accusation and he said to Ishbosheth you know I'm one here fighting wars against David's people I'm trying to keep you as a king and you go and you accuse me of so and so I'm going to do what I know I really should have been doing all along God swore to David to make him king I'm going to make sure that David is a king anyways he leaves him Avner he sends messages to David and Avner himself becomes the campaigning force who campaigns and gets all the Jewish people to follow King David. And after seven and a half years, it took seven and a half years after Shaul Melech, I'm sorry, Shmuel Navi, Samuel anointed King, uh, King David until David the Melech was officially appointed king over all of the Jewish people. And even when he was king, he was rejected and chased by everyone. They didn't really understand the greatness of David, so it says in, 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 in Chazal, until Shlomo Melech was king. That's the story of how this great light comes to the world. So when the Rebbe tells us in 1991, 1992, that Mashiach is revealed already in the world, and he's already here, and take a look, his light is shining all over, and so on and so forth. And people ask the question, well, wait, 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 where are all the Gedolius role? How come not everybody followed? And how come not everybody this? The answer is, this is the story. Regarding Mashiach himself, it says he will be revealed, concealed, and will be revealed. 
It says in many places that Mashiach will be scorned and will be laughed upon and will be rejected and those who follow him faithfully will also be laughed upon. But in the end, his righteousness will be, will be revealed. I'm going to share with you an incredible conclusion to all of this, something that I came across last week. And well, this will conclude this, this, this class. We know regarding Mashiach, it says that Mashiach is revealed, concealed, and he's revealed. And I mentioned this. Um, so last week, there is a pasuk. This is just this is like an amazing thing. There's a pasuk that says, "Vayisa Yisrael and Pashas Vayishlach." Yisrael traveled, Vayeta Hole, and, and he pitches his tent, Mahola Migdal Eder, further than Migdal Eder, past Migdal Eder. There's a fascinating targum, Yonas and Benuziel. This is a targum. A, a, the translation by Jonas and Benoziel is a great sage. He says that, yeah, first in the first half of the verse, he says, Yaakov plants his tent. And he says, what's this place? He says, Asra, that's the place. This place where he's pitching his tent, his ohel, is the place where from there in the future, Malka Mashiach will be revealed in the end of days. Okay. Something, Yaakov is planting his tent in Lohala Migdaleida. This was like a, a, an action of Yaakov Avinu that has to do with the final revelation of Mashiach. This Pasuk, Vayisa Yisro, Vayet, Ahola, Mayhola, Lemigdal Eder. I checked it, seven words. You can do the gamatri. You can you can calculate it. Do your own. Don't trust me. But the gamatria of the whole pasuk together is one thousand two hundred and fifteen. That's the number. In which the targum Yonason says the place from where Malcolm Shicha will be revealed in the end of days. So what else is gamatria? One thousand two hundred and fifteen. Gimel, Tammuz, Hey, Tav, Shin, Nun, Dalet. Gimel, just a Gimel, not the whole word Gimel, just a Gimel. Tammuz, Hey, five, Hey is 5,000, Tav, Shin is 700, Nun, Dalet. But you don't count the Hey over here, it's five. You just write it, Hey, Tav, Shin, Nun, Dalet. So if you write out Gimel, Tammuz, Hey, Tav, Shin, Nun, Dalet, you get the exact gematria of 1215. And we know what happened to Gimel Thomas Tafshin on Dalit. That's when that's when the oil became the place where Chassidim and the whole world goes for blessings. And it, uh, that's the exact gematria of 1215 where the Targum Yonis and Benaziel says, Asra, the place, the Asid Malka Mashiach, that Mashiach is going to reveal himself in the end of days. Let's hope that this Yutas Kislev already we should have already the full Hizgalos, the full revelation of Mashiach Tzedkeinu. No more concealments, no more blockages. The whole world will see how it was in front of our eyes all the time. We're just missing it because we're looking at this. Like the Rebbe once said, by if I bring it, the Rebbe once said that the the the, the Otsar, it's an amazing expression the Rebbe said. There is an Otsar, there's the, the treasure that all generations were waiting for is now sitting in front of everybody and people are just not seeing it because they're looking this way and that way and they're just missing it and not seeing it. 
That's exactly what we're dealing with over here. Moshiach is light, is already all over the entire world. May Hashem help. Moshiach should be fully revealed. And all questions and all silliness and all obstructions should evaporate and disappear. We should be zoicha ready to the full revelation. Yutas Kislev, Moshiach Tzadkeinu. May it be now, now, and now. Thank <laughs> you.